My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Our Sunday School. Glad you guys are with us this morning. If you want to take your Bibles, and we'll head over to Mark chapter 15. Uh, we are within eyesight of the end of Mark 15, which is crazy. So how many of you saw my uh, Facebook post this week about what I got finished with this week? You may see that. Yeah. I uh, finished with all the handouts for the rest of Mark. And it's always this, um, this really weird feeling when you're kind of like, all right, we're done. We're just waiting on that next, these weeks to happen. Um, and I am, I'm very excited about uh, the text and some of the things that, that I had never seen before in the, the last few, uh, and certainly the last chapter of Mark, but the last few verses of Mark. And uh, it's, it's one of those things now that I have, you know, I put five weeks of lessons in my head this last week. And so if, if I start to get ahead of myself, I need somebody to go, no, 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 it's not this week's text. Like reel it back in. So somebody just wave or throw something soft at me. That'd be helpful. All right. So we've got uh, several folks online this morning. Hey, welcome, guys. Good morning. And uh, it looks like the barbers are on the road. So please be careful, Dave. I'll try not to say anything too terribly funny so you drive off the side of the road. Uh, not that I really would, but that's okay. All right. So we're in Mark chapter 15. Uh, so let's go and read through uh, Mark 15. And then we'll pick up, I believe this morning, with verse 30. Yeah, verse, verse 33. So Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again answered, asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. 
and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who also was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he'd already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Mark chapter 15. <clears throat> so in today's text, starting in verse 33... Something odd happens right off the bat. So verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, so what we've, we've talked about time a little bit so far. So the sixth hour was what time? Of that? It's around noon, right? So when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay? So there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So has anybody ever experienced anything that would cause darkness over the middle of the day for several hours. A what? Solar eclipse. Cool. Could that have been what happened here? Believe it or not, there is a definitive answer. And the answer is no. Because Passover. And Passover happens when? The full moon. If you have a full moon, you can't have a solar eclipse. The moon is literally, my best Chris Traeger voice, in the wrong position for this to happen. Like, it cannot occur. So this was not a solar eclipse. And you're thinking, well, well, dang it. There you go, right? 
if, if you've been in a solar eclipse for three hours, you're, you were a bit confused because that was not a solar eclipse, right? <laughs> Didn't take quite that long. Um, so, what is, so what is darkness associated with in the Bible? Is darkness generally associated with something positive and righteous or negative? Like which way do we typically go? This is, this is a negative thing, right? I mean, if you go back to Exodus 10, darkness was actually one of the plagues that God gave to Egypt, right? Which you're like, oh, okay, well, this is, this is not associated with something very good. Even if you go back to Genesis 1, when uh, darkness covered the face of the deep, the earth was void and without form, it, it's not associated with really positive life-oriented things. It's associated with lack of life and death. And like, this is not a good place. And if you look at the end of the book in Revelation, is heaven a place of darkness or a place of light? It's a place of light, right? The lamb itself is the light. So Lamb himself is the light. So when we see this darkness, this is not something that is readily explained by natural phenomenon. Um, some of the, I, I read a wide range of commentaries, and a, a few of them, which I still can't wrap my head around, have written thousand-page-long commentaries, and they don't believe the Bible's true. And it's like, why, why would you dedicate this much of your life to something if you don't actually believe it? Like, I, just, I cannot wrap my head around this. But they try to explain it away. It's a, it was a Middle Eastern stand, a sandstorm, um, which it feels like if it was a sandstorm, sand might have been mentioned somewhere and not just darkness, right? But, uh, but this is actually, I, I would argue, very directly connected to what is going to be said by Jesus very shortly after this. So I'm going, to say, I'm going to show you one more thing real quick, because we've been looking a lot at Old Testament prophecies that Jesus has been fulfilling. Uh, so I'll give you a second to get there, but Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. Now, I cheated. I knew I was going to Amos, so I put my bookmark there. <laughs> so I wouldn't make the face that many of you just made that I can see. Like, Amos. Ugh. I would argue that Amos is even tricky to find on an online Bible because you can scroll right past all those little books really quickly, but, you know, there's that. So Amos chapter 8. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a couple of verses, and you, you tell me if, if any of this sounds, like, vaguely familiar. So this is verses 9 and 10. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and like the end of it like a bitter day. Feels like there's some sort of connection going on here. It's, the, the time itself is just way too specific, right? Like we're going we're to darken the day at noon and like mourning for an only sun. I mean, it, it, and how do you pull that off, right? If you're a fake Messiah, how do you pull that one off? We're going to orchestrate darkness for a few hours in the middle of the day and go, right? <laughs> even, 
Even in Hollywood movies, when they try to simulate darkness, the shadows are off most of the time, and it just looks wonky, and it's kind of, you're like, ah, I don't know about this. And that's with all of our technology. You're either the Messiah or you're not, and this is God just saying definitively, look, there's darkness, there's grieving here because of this sacrifice. So even Amos saw something, like, go Amos, that's awesome. So verse 34, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now, let me, let me just, I, I, and I don't want to hit this too hard, but I want to make sure we understand, like, how did you actually die on the cross? You suffocate. And if, if, if you suffocate, do you experience bouts of tremendous strength while you're suffocating? Like that doesn't, it doesn't really seem normal. And one of the things, and if you, if you kind of point to the, the end of this paragraph, in verse 39, when the centurion who stood by facing him, and centurions would have been people that would have been grizzled, hardened soldiers, right? You didn't get appointed to be a centurion your first week on the job, right? I mean, you were years and years into this role. You'd have seen a lot of things. And this is a guy that's on cross duty. So he, he would have done this before. He'd have seen a lot of this happen. When he saw that in this way he breathed his last, there was something different about how Jesus died than every other crucifixion this guy had ever seen before. Like it was not uncommon for the Romans to go and invade some area and take over and crucify the leaders to show, hey, we're here. There's a new guard in town. Right? There's new leadership in place. They would crucify anybody that objected to them, an insurrectionist, people fighting against them. So crucifixions were very common, and centurions would have seen this. And when Jesus cries out back in 34 with a loud voice, this was not normal for somebody who is being crucified. How do you summon the strength to have a loud voice after you've been on the cross suffocating for three hours, right? You don't get stronger through a crucifixion. That's not the way this stuff works. So I just to keep this in our minds as we walk through because Jesus does some things that we just, we just always heard this. And it's like, well, of course he cried out with a loud voice. That's what he did. Yeah, but that wasn't normal, right? This is not normal. So he cries out with a loud voice. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lemes tabachthani. And no, I was not born knowing how to say that. This is the, you listen to online Bibles enough and record yourself, and I, I think that sounds pretty close. There we go. We'll settle on that. But a, a couple of things, a couple of things about this quote. So if you've got any type of study Bible at all, you're going to immediately be redirected back to Psalm 22. So let's head back to Psalm 22 for a second. So Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Explicit, clear quote of Jesus here from Psalm 22. With one caveat, look again at Mark 1534. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. What language is that? 
Aramaic, yes. What language was Psalm 22 written in? Hebrew. <laughs> so why is Jesus using Aramaic to quote Hebrew? All right, let's, let's rewind just a second and make sure we understand what normal looked like when Jesus was walking around. So normal looked like the Romans spoke Greek, and if you wanted to do commerce with the Romans, you need to speak Greek. The Jewish religious elite knew Hebrew and taught it to the kids, but you may or may not be aware of this, but the common everyday tongue, the walking around, teaching, communicating, was Aramaic. So when, when we see words in Aramaic in Mark's gospel, one of the things this tips us off to is that this was Jesus' normal language that he taught and communicated in. It's like, okay, but he's a rabbi. He knows the Hebrew. So why does he pick Aramaic instead of Hebrew? Who's at the cross? All the passerbys, right? Hundreds and hundreds, potentially thousands of people walking by. Who else is at the cross? We just talked about him. The centurion and the guard there, making sure that the execution went according to plan. The guard wouldn't have understood Hebrew. Like that would not have been in his, but he, didn't understand, he would have understood Aramaic. Jesus picked a language in the middle of his agony that everybody would have understood. Wow. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know in the middle of my torture that I'm overly focused on the optimal communication mechanism, but this is what Jesus did. It's just so I, don't, I didn't want us to miss this. Uh, this would have been, you know, he would have read text of the scripture in Hebrew, but he would have expounded upon them, explained them in Aramaic. And we actually see a little drops of that all through Mark's gospel where Mark will throw in some Aramaic word and then explain it for his listeners. So, so he says, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, now why would, why would Mark need to translate it for his audience? Because his audience didn't necessarily know Aramaic, right? It's the only reason you need to translate something for somebody if you didn't know it. So if, so who is Mark writing for then? That is a wonderfully complicated question <laughs> that I have tried to artfully dodge this entire time. So what does Jesus say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and you can, I, I have actually heard this taught and preached that Jesus was, uh, this is complaining to the Father, this is griping, this is all sorts of these things. And I'm like, time out, time out, time out. Like, what's the first two words? My God. In his moment of agony, he declares who his God is. Wow. And in case we weren't paying attention, he does it again. <laughs> My God. And then he asks the question, why have you forsaken me? Now, lest we get confused, uh, Gary has this Pastor Gary has this amazing uh, quote about God asking questions, right? God, when God asks questions, he doesn't ask because he doesn't know the answer. Right. So let's, let's all make sure we settle on the fact that this is not Jesus being unsure of what the answer was. He knew before the earth was created exactly what the objective was here for him to come and to die. So he knew exactly why the Father had to forsake him. So let's, let's answer the question here for just a second. Why 
did the Father forsake the Son on the cross? That's exactly right. Because all the sin of all the world of all time was placed on Christ at this point. So it's not just because we because we Mark really leans hard into the suffering of the Son of God. What Mark doesn't lean hard into is all the theological ramifications of the weight of the sin also laid on Jesus Christ. Right? Mark is the first gospel out of the gate. He's trying to establish the authenticity, the validity, the details, so that we can say and plant a flag, yes, these events occurred, yes, we have witnesses, yes, we can go back and check and ask and make sure these things happen. The later gospel writers look back through the lens of Mark and all of the Old Testament, and they begin to weave in additional theological components to help us understand the broader perspective. A couple of decades later, the epistles come along, and they've got a couple of decades of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they have a much fuller understanding of how all of this theology begins to work. You see Paul come in with his wonderful uh, treatise to the Romans and all the epistles. I mean, it's just, and this theological background begins to grow and grow and grow, and then we come along a couple thousand years later and get the benefit of all this study, and, and it's just this, Wow. But if the father doesn't forsake the son, then we have a problem, right? Because God cannot accept sin. God has to turn away from sin. And Jesus, in this moment, had taken on himself all sin for all time. So the sin that I committed this morning, the sin that I'm going to commit this afternoon, the sin I'm going to commit tonight, the sin next week, the sin next year. I'm sorry for all of this, Jules. Um, all of mine that hadn't even occurred yet when Jesus is on the cross, all of that is on him. The sin that's occurring against Jesus while Jesus is on the cross, the wagging of the heads, the mocking, the scourging, the beating, the inappropriate treatment of the Son of God himself, all of that is on Jesus. All of the sin that ever occurred before Jesus ever gets on the cross is on Jesus. Like this is, this is crushing. And, and yet he starts his quote with, my God, my God. What a beautiful declaration. What a beautiful declaration. Yes, Ms. Sherry. God still turned away from his son. That's right. Absolutely. And that's how much he loves you. Wow. 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 I, I literally have wow, wow written in my notes <laughs> above when uh, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? That, that forsaken is an active indicative. It's been an active, intentional act by the Father, and it's an indicative, so it's a statement of fact from the perspective of the speaker. Jesus is the speaker. This is the truth. This, is, this was not some, like, well, I'll just, you know, I accidentally turned my back, and it, my back was accidentally. No, 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 no. This is an active decision on the part of the Father to do this. So why have you forsaken me? The statement that she made 
That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, the, the holy, uh, happy birthday, by the way, belated. Um, the, uh, the holiness of God is, is certainly an undertaught theology in our modern day, right? Um, you, you really only need to go back 70, 80, 100 years and like volume of sermons on the holiness of God are much, much larger uh, than they are today. Because holiness is not a, I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a holiness TikTok account, but I, I can't imagine it's going to get a lot of followers. Right? I mean, this is just not, that's not going to be popular in our, in our world today. Um, a couple of things about this, why have you forsaken me? What is, what is going on theologically here on the cross? Uh, Galatians 3.13 uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ becomes a curse in this moment for us so that we are not cursed. It's just unbelievable. I'll say it again. Wow. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it, and if you have ever been in any type of uh, communication role and been frustrated that somebody misunderstood your messaging, please know it has been happening for thousands of years. If you say something, there will be somebody who misunderstands what you are trying to say. Right, So some of the bystanders hearing it said, and this is an imperfect uh, tense, so it's just repeatedly said, behold, he's calling for Elijah. I'm like, well, how do you get Elijah out of my God, my God? Eloi, Eloi. And Elijah starts with Eliah, Eliah. So it's very, very close. Uh, an accent in the wrong spot would make a listener go, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Like, what's he calling for Elijah for? Well, a little backstory here. There was, there was like a... Um, you guys are familiar with the concept of a guardian angel, right? And when a child dies, he goes to heaven and becomes an angel, right? Mm, no, this is not how this works, right? Kids don't become angels. Angels are angels. God made them distinctly from humans. But there was a myth along those types of lines that Elijah would come and help and assist anyone who was in distress, and especially if you were in distress and you were a just person. So, like, oh, okay, well, I could, I could sort of see how you could wedge that square peg into that round hole, sort of, kind of. But this is what's going on in the background with the language. In verse 36, and someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And at this point, you might be thinking, okay, Mark's ADHD is in full gear because we are jumping from seeing the concept. I mean, they're just, they're kind of all over the place here, right? Well, each one of these things is actually spelled out in other Gospels with a little bit more detail. So we're not going to go into, into all of that, but I do want to talk for just a second um, about this sour wine. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it's really funny because there's a couple of uh, like high-end resources for understanding Greek words as they show up in other non-canonical works. And kind of the, the top of the line is the BDAG. And he, he talks about it as the poor man's drink, and that it was a, and I'm directly quoting here, a thirst quencher. 
And I read it and I was like, wait, so like Gatorade just ripped off the, the sour wine concept? Like that's what's going on? And, it, and basically what it is, it's, it's a poor man's wine that they would water down. And the soldiers figured out it was crazy cheap because soldiers are not rich people. And it was really easily accessible. Pretty much anywhere you could get this stuff. And it quenched your thirst. You're like, okay, well, there we go. It seems rather odd, but this is, this is what it is. Now, in John's gospel, Jesus says, because there's seven different things that Jesus says on the cross, right? What's the thing that John's gospel records that Jesus says that triggers this fella to go run and get the sour wine? You remember? I thirst, yes. He's like, okay, well, if you're thirsty, we can fix that. And John's gospel actually says that the soldiers had like a, a jar or a jug of it there at the cross because this is what they were drinking because, <laughs> you know, as long as the dude doesn't come down and as long as nobody takes him down, this is not an overly complicated assignment once you get him up there, right? I mean, this is pretty, so we're just going to chill and, and drink. This is kind of the idea. So they get a sponge. Uh, and put sour wine on it, and put it on a reed. And this, this reed is the exact same Greek word that they were beating him with earlier, right? So this instrument of, of pain was also an instrument of relief, which there's just gobs of theological implications with that that I'm not going to go into. Uh, but they gave it to him to drink, and this is an imperfect hymn, so they repeatedly does this, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So... So the poor fella who misunderstood Elijah understood the thirst. So again, I'm going to go back to the communications thing. You've you got to find multiple ways to say things. Otherwise, people are going to be partly confused or mostly confused all the time. And it's just, it's just fascinating to me. So, so was Elijah standing on ready to come and help the Son of God? Let's answer that question real quick. No, like that's not Elijah's job. That is not Elijah's function in all of history to do that. And then we get to verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud a megaphone, literally the Greek is megaphone, a loud cry and breathed his last, which is a, like a Greek euphemism for he died, like his last breath went out of him. So about how long was he on the cross here? Put him up at 9, 3 o'clock is the last recorded time. It's about six hours that he was on the cross. So he breathes his last. And then we've got this scene change in the middle of the paragraph. You're like, well, what is Mark doing? Well, Mark's doing what he's been doing the entire time, right? He was just doing it with Jesus traveling around Israel. Now he's doing it with scene changes on the cross. I, I would hate absolutely hate to try to make a movie out of only Mark's gospel. It would be like three seconds here and change scene, change scene. And it would be astronomically expensive to make with the set changes. So he breathes his last in verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. All right, let's talk about this curtain for a second. So the first question I have is which curtain are we talking about? Because there were two curtains at the temple. There was an external curtain. And if, if you have in your mind, Julie and I were talking about this last night. If you have in your mind like curtains in your house, no. 
no, 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 no. The external curtain was separated the, uh, it was actually visible from outside of the temple uh, construct itself. It separated the, help me out here, make sure I get this right, the court of the men from the court of the priests, right? Is that right? Yep. And this thing was, uh, our best estimates are about 75 feet tall. So what, like, I feel like there should be a different word for curtain. Because <laughs> curtain, to me, is something that would cover that window or those doors or that. I'm like, just like, oh, these are nice little, no, 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 no. Like, curtain. <laughs> like, just massive, massive, massive thing. So that's one of them. And then there was a curtain inside the what? The Holy of Holies, right? That separated the place where the priest would go and to do a specific action and the place where the priest would go one day a year to do the thing that hopefully he was terrified to do because if he wasn't, like this is like catch-22 stuff, right? Um, you need to be partly crazy to go do this because if you're not, you, you may not be up for it. And if you're partly crazy, I'm nervous about your ability to survive it. So I'm not really sure. So we, we're left in Mark's gospel actually not knowing which one it is until Hebrews. And Hebrews makes it abundantly clear. We are talking about the inner curtain, right? Now, does anybody have any idea how tall the inner curtain was? They know? It would have been at least 20 feet tall, potentially up to 30 feet tall. And remember, this is a place that excludes, like, Whatever the most exclusive club you're a member of, it is not as exclusive as the Holy of Holies, right? It's, this is like nobody goes in there. There's one person that goes in there one day a year. So, <laughs> what do you think went through the next guy's mind that went into the Holy of It's like, um, boss, we have a, a, like a real problem. Because this separated the physical presence of God on the planet from everything else. So theologically, let's put our theology hats on here for just a second. If you tear the boundary between the physical presence of God and everything else, and you tear it from top to bottom, which means you, there were no ladders in there, guys, right? I mean, you couldn't physically pull this off. You could not have pulled off an assault on the temple to, to tear this curtain without everybody there losing all of their ever-loving minds. It was not going to occur. Yes, Mitch? It's exactly right. Because it was layer after layer after layer after layer of skins. Right? And yes. Inches and inches thick. This would be like you tearing a couple of phone books taped. I mean, you're, just, you're not doing this. That's 30 feet high or whatever. 12 inches thick. I, I would want it as thick as possible if I was the high priest. <laughs> like, I, I want to make sure that there is, like, this is as secure as it can be, right? You know, because I'm about to take a potentially one-way trip here, and I want to make sure we're all, everybody good? We're all good? You're good? I'm, I'm good? Yep. Yes. 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 
Yes. Yep. So this veil separated, you know, anyone that was in the actual temple where those table of showbread That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I want to point out one more word, and then we'll, Lord willing, pick up with verse 39 next week. I want to point out the word for torn. It's the word shidzo. It, it, we're going to get a, you could get the word schism from it, right? The English word. This word only shows up one other place in Mark's gospel, and it, it shows up at Jesus' baptism. And it's the word that describes what happened to the heavens when God said, this is my beloved son. Like, the heavens actually tore. I don't, I don't have a bucket to put this in in my visual painting ability. But the heavens tore, and God declared that Jesus was his son. So, on the cross, darkness happens and right when Jesus dies, the veil that was, if there was anything that was a symbol of the priesthood and the Levitical sacrificial system and all of the Old Testament constraints and requirements that God put on his people is torn. And the centurion is the one who says, truly, this is the Son of God. Do you see how Mark starts his gospel with God the Father declaring Jesus is the Son, and he ends his gospel with this declaration from a pagan soldier that Jesus is God's Son. It is, it is flatly undeniable. You cannot get through Mark's gospel and deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so Lord willing, we'll pick up next week with verse 39. I'm going to make a note. If I don't make a note, I have to go back and listen and figure out where I stopped because I don't, I don't ever remember where I stopped. It's kind of funny. All right, so uh, we should have, uh, you should have a uh, weekly update at your table. And so if you would uh, pray over a section or two of those, uh, if you've got any changes or updates to make, please do that. And then uh, make sure your name's at the bottom. Uh, thank you again to all of you online. Appreciate you engaging with us. And uh, I don't see that Dave or Margie have uh, asked for help. And if they did, Dave would just fix it because that's how Dave does. But uh, hopefully you guys are safe traveling as well. And uh, with that, we will uh, finish Sunday school for today. And again, I believe it's Mark 1539 for next week. I am really looking forward to next week's lesson. I've been looking forward to it for a couple of months. Uh, to finally shine a light on the role of the women that supported and followed Jesus in the New Testament because, oh my goodness, they had an amazing role. Uh, and we're going to hang out and park there for a minute. So I'm excited about that. So thanks for coming to Sunday School today, guys. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.